Hey there, welcome. It's a, another episode of the Stories of Gumption podcast coming at you live. Well, not quite live, but you know what I mean. This thing's pre-recorded, but sometimes it feels live, and that's what we love about it. It's authentic. And uh, real conversations with entrepreneurs, creative thinkers, and in my opinion, just really, really impressive people. We are supported by three fantastic sponsors. So before we get into uh, this episode today, uh, we're going to talk to you about them. Uh, The first one, Sparkle Clean. That's right, S-P-A-R-K-I-L-K-L-E-E-N, Sparkle Clean. They provide professional and economic cleaning solutions to residential and commercial structures. They specialize in window cleaning, floor care, carpet extraction, and auto-slash-boat detailing. That's right. You heard it. They'll do boat detailing, and they'll detail your car. So give them a call. Free estimate, 518-578-2931. That is 518-578-2931. You can also find them on Facebook. They're on Instagram, at SparkleClean. That's Zach and Kate Hoyt, everybody. They're local to Champlain Valley. They uh, are great people. I actually met them through the Adirondack Young Professionals, and uh, man, great people, local people. They deserve your business if you have a professional cleaning need. Uh, Give them a call. No job too small or too big, I think. I don't know. Give them a call to find out. Sparkle Clean. We are also sponsored by Kavanaugh Realty. You've heard of them before, but if you haven't, they are a local independent real estate company helping their neighbors buy and sell their homes here in the Champlain Valley. Uh, They're all over social media. So check them out on their website. Definitely social media, definitely Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, Galen Trombley, uh, is heading up that crew, but they got a great crew over there. And man, when you walk in that office and you visit those folks, they are bringing the energy and the positivity. And uh, there are, as I've said in previous uh, podcasts, tons of really great, passionate real estate agents and firms and brokers in our region. We are blessed to have them. They're all doing amazing work. And uh, they're helping to move our area forward. Uh, but Kavanaugh Realty is a proud supporter of this podcast, and we're really happy to have them supporting us. Hashtag Local Matters. And our third sponsor, if you've listened to any of these episodes from the Stories of Gumption podcast, you've probably heard of them. They've been along for the ride uh, almost every episode, and uh, their support keeps coming, and we are. Super grateful for that support. Uh, That is Open Gate Farmstead. You've heard the jingle. There are stones throw away from the mighty Osable River. Open Gate Farmstead is a first-generation farm specializing in free-range poultry, pasture-raised pork, and seasonal produce. The farm is run using a simple principle. Happy animals make the healthiest and tastiest product. You're going to find their chickens eating bugs on pasture, their pigs enjoying a mud bath or maybe some acorns, and if you're lucky, the geese will be enjoying that pond. To watch and experience the Open Gate Farmstead journey, you can check them out on YouTube. They're at, right there. Search it, Open Gate Farmstead. Or you can catch them on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, they're all over social media. Check them out and try that farm fresh difference. 
Well, again, Open Gate Farmstead, we really appreciate their sponsorship. Today, holy smokes, what a treat. Have you ever thought about how you can be a little bit more meditative, calm, relaxed, reduce your stress, focus on your own mindfulness, your own mental strength? You know, for a long time, I was kind of a suspect. I was like, eh, I don't need that stuff. But I'll tell you what, after my conversation with Dr. Sharon Thoreau, I am really reconsidering meditation, mindfulness, and all the positive impacts that it can have on my short-term and long-term life. So, hey, enjoy this episode of the Stories of Gumption podcast. Gumption, defined as initiative, aggressiveness, resourcefulness, courage, spunk, guts, common sense, shrewdness. Welcome to the podcast. This is Stories of Gumption with your host, Ryan Lee. All right, we're live. I'm very excited. Uh, I, I hope that I'm going to learn something personally, but you as a listener, I hope uh, I hope you get something from this as well. Today's uh, episode is with Dr. Sharon Thoreau. She's a neuropsychologist, psychotherapist, certified MBSR instructor, which stands for Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. She's the co-founder of South Florida Psychology. She's the founder of South Florida Center for Mindfulness and if she's not busy enough, she's the co-founder of International Seminars Group. Welcome to the Stories of Gumption podcast, Dr. Sharon Thoreau. Well, thank you, Ryan, and thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, full transparency out there. We uh, probably should say as well that you are my wonderful wife's aunt. Mm-hmm. You're my and nephew-in-law. <laughs> nephew-in-law, you're my aunt-in-law, and I'm pr- super proud to say that because... Me too with uh, you. Yeah, um, certainly my life is in a, a net positive because of it. Mm, well, um, so anyhow, uh, I, I would love to get right into this thing. Uh, I'd love to talk about your story of gumption, learn a little bit more about you and your background, um, but let's start with what gumption means to you? Hmm. Well, that's a very good question. And it's interesting. I never quite thought about the word until you told me that this was going to be a question. So I actually Googled it (laughs) to find out. (laughs) And uh, what I came up with uh, from Wikipedia is that gumption is a shrewd or spirited initiative and resourcefulness. And I was mm. like, hmm, yeah, that's that sounds like gumption to me. So, but to me also, I think that gumption oftentimes arises out of uh, something that has been a struggle for someone. Uh, mm. So, uh, so yeah, I think sometimes with gumption, there needs to be a little bit of suffering in involved. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. 
And, and, you know, I love asking that question because although uh, every guest sort of plays with this a similar uh, meaning of gumption, that everybody has their own take on it too, which is, I think is why I love the word. Uh, it means so much uh, to so many different people. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there's something great about, uh, having experiences in your life where you've got to muster a little gumption. Yes. Yes. And it helps define you as a human being, these, these struggles. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so let's, let's talk a little bit about that. So, I mean, where'd you grow up? What was your background? And I, I sort of know this a bit. Um, but for the listeners, tell them a little bit about the upbringing of Sharon Thoreau. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I grew up in uh, a military family. My father was in the Air Force. And uh, I actually lived uh, up in Plattsburgh uh, with my family there. Uh, I have one older brother and I have four, um, there's four of us sisters and I'm the oldest of the sisters. And uh, from the time I was pretty much born till the time I was seven, I lived in Plattsburgh on the Air Force Base. And uh, then we moved, we got transferred to Orlando, Florida, and I was there until the middle of my junior year in high school. And then the base in Orlando closed and we had to move back up to Plattsburgh, um, which was good mm. in a way because it was, it was an area that we knew of and uh, before, but uh, it was a big culture shock for me moving from you know, Orlando, which had Disney World, a uh, very cosmopolitan area, and then moving um, and then in the middle of your junior year uh, to be moving up to, um, you know, I went to Peru Central School. So it was mm-hmm. a really big culture shock for me. Um, I had, I remember back in the 70s, I was wearing these, you know, pastel blue, uh, powder blue bell bottom, you know, pants with platform shoes. And then going to <laughs> Peru where, you know, it, it was a more rural area. I felt like a fish yeah. out of water, but, um, fantastic. I, yeah. But I, uh, I acclimated, I, I acclimated there pretty well. And, um, I, uh, graduated high school there. Um, I went to Clinton community college there and I got my associate's degree in nursing and then, uh, moved to Florida, uh, to work as a nurse. Um, when I was about maybe not, not long after I got my nursing degree, uh, I moved Mm. down here. So, uh, so yeah. What, what inspired you to be, to go and pursue your, your nursing degree at, at Clinton community? I have to say, uh, there'll be somebody who was on this podcast. Episode two is, his name's, uh, Steve Frederick. He's the, a good friend of mine. Uh, he's, um, the vice president of institutional advancement, He's got so many great st- stories yes, about I think I the nursing, to... the nurse, the nursing program and its impact. And uh, anyhow, I'm just curious, what led you there? Yeah, it was it was just a stroke of luck. Uh, I was going there in my first year of college, and I didn't really know what I wanted to become. Um, 
I thought that I was, I was in their recreational leadership program. I thought I was going to be a track coach because I, <laughs> I, I excelled in, in track when I was in cross country when I was in high school. So I thought I was going to do that. And then I took this biology course um, by uh, Pat Mack was the teacher. And I swear to God, Ryan, taking that class and listening to biology, it was like food for my soul. This teacher, <laughs> Pat Mack, um, was just such a wonderful teacher, and she really ignited in me a, a passion for the sciences. And so after I took the biology class, I wanted to take her next class, which was anatomy and physiology. And they told me that, oh, that class is closed to the first-year nursing students. We're starting up this new nursing program. And uh, they said, but you know what? Uh, and this was like in the summer. And they said, two people have actually decided not to come here. So if you can get your application in by, you know, Friday morning, was, this is probably like a Wednesday, um, we'll take a look at it. And oh my God, <laughs> I swear to God. So luckily I had a 4.0 average at, at Clinton. So I applied and, and I got in and uh, I was, you know, it was just, it was just kismet. I, I just, you know, can't believe it. And then um, as the, I am truly um, grateful to Clinton Community College because I, I got nursing scholarships. Um, I was able to, to uh, live in the nurses' dorms. Um, so I really, I really owe a lot to uh, the Clinton Community College, and I'm a, a contributor to the Clinton Community College Foundation every year because, you know, it it uh, it really helped change my life. So. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So. So yeah, um, so I it was Pat Mack's class at Clinton Community College in biology that really struck up my my interest in science. I just love science. I'm a, I'm a real geek when it comes to <laughs> scientists and uh, scientific information and research. And um, I don't read a lot of novels, but I read you know a lot of nonfiction brain related research. So I don't know. It's just the way. That's just what I'm interested in. I guess. What was your first nursing job? So do you, I assume you graduated out of uh, Clinton and you went and got a job right away? I, or? I did. I worked at CVPH Medical Center. Um, I was. I started on the night shift um, on the psychiatric unit. <laughs> so nice. Yeah, yeah. I would. Uh, you know, people as when you're a starting nurse back then. Anyway. Uh, you had to start with the night shift, you know, shift that no one else wanted. And mm. there really wasn't a lot to do on the night shift on the psych unit. The nice thing is about working the, the, on the psych unit is that you could wear regular clothes. So that was kind of nice. Um, but I used to get, I remember uh, that I used to uh, get people ready for electroconvulsive therapy uh, in the mornings. That was my oh, wow. big job to get them ready for their shock therapy appointments. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, that was, that was my first job there. It was at CVPH. Wow. And, and I assume you did that for a little while. And at some point you pivoted towards the career you're doing now. I'm curious about how that all evolved in your uh, life. Okay. 
Well, actually, um, what happened there at CVPH, um, I was, uh, I, I ended up dating uh, the, one of the, um, he was a, an LPN, a, a male nurse who worked the same shift yep. as I did. And we started dating and uh, we dated for a little while. And then, you know, it was kind of, you know, in the hospital setting, you know, it's a very small world there. And we, when we broke up, I was really, it was really devastating to me. And I personally could not think of, I was so brokenhearted after that breakup. I, I couldn't think of living in the same town, let alone working in the same hospital with, oh, with wow. him. Yeah. And, and uh, so because of that, uh, and also I was kind of on the outs with my my mother, because she didn't really like the, the, you know, the fact that I was dating. So, and, you know, so I was kind of distanced from my family. I was distanced from, you know, my boyfriend when we broke up and, and I just got this brand new nursing degree. And I thought, you know what, I can go back to Florida. So, so I packed my bags and I just, I just moved to Florida. I don't know how I did it. I really don't know how I did it. I (laughs) I blacked out. Yeah, it was just, I I think it was just motivated by shame. You know, I didn't, you know, because I felt like such a failure, you know, and, but uh, I, you know, so it was motivated by that, but, you know, I really needed to get away for, you know, from, you know, the small town and, you know, I needed to create my own identity Um, Mm, I think that, you know, my mother is a very charismatic woman. And I think at the time I wanted to be just like her, but you know, you can't be just like anybody. You need to find out who you are on your own rights. And so if I didn't, if I hadn't moved away, I don't think that would have ever happened. Interesting. So, So, yeah, so I moved, so I moved down to Florida and then I worked as a nurse in Florida for a while and then um, after a few years of living down here, um, I struggled with some, de- some depression and some self-esteem issues and maybe some eating, not maybe, I struggled with uh, bulimia. So mm. I, I, uh, I was having a difficult time. And I think that in my 20s, I, I think that it was because I was really shy, you know, at that point. And I didn't know very many people here and I didn't have any, you know, didn't have any family, didn't have any friends. So I felt very lonely. And so I kind of fell into a, a like a slump. And then and how old were you at that time? Um, I was about 21. Okay. Um, or okay. no, no, I'm sorry. About 26. It was 21 when I okay. left, when I left Plattsburgh. And then by, by about 26, it was actually another breakup with a boyfriend. <laughs> That, oh, those, uh, those damn boyfriends, man. I know. Always... <laughs> I know, I know, but you know what? I am so happy that this happened uh, because things happen for a reason. Absolutely. Well, or well, things happen to provide us an opportunity to. I like that. Yeah. To figure yeah, out yeah, what exactly. we're going to do. Exactly. And and at the time when I was just so, this was a guy, you know, I was going out with this guy. He was really. Um, he was a, a local DJ at one of the radio stations. So he was really popular. So when we went out, it was like, you know, we were like, you know, I was like 
a celebrity almost yeah. going out. For, yeah. So for this three month period of time, I was on this wild ride and, you know, it was just felt like I was treated like a princess and, you know, flowers coming to my workplace every day. And then, so when he, when we broke up again, I was devastated. And then he was the one that told me, I, you know, I, I, he said, you know what, you, we haven't been going out that long for you to be feeling this bad. I think you might, you, you could probably benefit by seeing a therapist. And I swear to God, Ryan, you know, I was 26 years old. I was a nurse. I never considered the thought of going into therapy. I didn't know what therapy was all yeah. about. Um, I knew even working on a psych unit, you know, I knew inpatient stuff, but so but when at that moment when he said, you know, I think you should see a therapist, um, that was probably one of my first, maybe my second um, moment of gumption. The first one was yeah. just packing up and moving. But the second moment, it was just saying, okay, I can't fix this myself. Let me see if I can find someone who can help me. And so I did. I looked up, you know, wow. I, I looked up a therapist and I started down the road and I, I, I met uh, a wonderful therapist and, uh, and I started to feel better. And, wow. And so what happened with that was once I started to notice like, oh, wow, I'm not so depressed anymore. I thought I want to teach people how to, to do this, you know, to, to feel better about themselves. So, you know, I thought to myself, okay, let me go back to school and maybe I can, you know, I only had my associate's degree from Clinton Community, so I was going to mm -hmm. have to get my bachelor's and then maybe get my master's in social work. Um, but a master's degree in social work, I'd, I'd be able to see patients because my therapist was a social worker. So I thought, okay. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, maybe I'll be 80 years old by the time I get my degree, but at least I'm going <laughs> in the right direction, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so I, I got my bachelor's degree and at the, the, the last year that I, I was getting my bachelor's degree is when I met my husband and he had just come back from his internship. Um, he was a psychologist and he had just come back from Yale. He's, oh, he's a smarty pants, that guy. Um, what a guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's so cool. But anyway, um, he, <laughs> When we started dating, um, I told him that, you know, I was applying to such and such a school for social work. And, and he said, well, you know what, um, maybe you should apply to get your PhD in clinical psychology. And, I, and I'll tell you something, I, I never even considered becoming a doctor or a psychologist. I just, I just didn't think I, I had it in me. I, I, I just never considered it. But he, yeah. you know, made me think that, you know, maybe I could do it. So I filled out the applications and I got in. So, so that's kind of how that happened. <laughs> Again, it's just, wow. it's just timing, you know, that, that that's happened to me. I'm very grateful for all of the experiences in my life because it's helped me, you know, launch into different aspects of my life that I would have never probably come in contact with. So, yeah. You know, you, you, my my wife, uh, your uh, niece Lauren Gagne, uh, has a, a whiteboard in her office uh, that says, "The grass is always greener where you water it." Mm. 
and I, I always I think of that and I think of sort of what you said a little bit earlier. I forget exactly how you said it, but sort of not necessarily things are meant to happen. Um, but you there know, opportunities. opportunities are meant to come your way and it's up to you to decide whether you're going to take that opportunity or not. And, um, it's, it's interesting how you're, the course you, you, you had opportunities and you took them. That's yeah. it's really inspiring. Uh, what, what was it like going through that PhD program? Mm. I imagine that, that, I imagine that required a little bit of gumption. Yeah, it was it was pretty tough. I I remember statistics being especially tough, and that was in the very first semester of of uh, of class. And you know, I I would come home every night, and you know, I'd be you know, I, I remember crying, you know, saying I don't know if I can do this, and you know, but I just went to tutoring, and I got you know, I got everything that I needed to do. I first had to stop working. You know, there was no way that I could work. I was, I thought that I could work full time as a nurse while I was going to graduate school. And I was like, no, that's not going to happen. But luckily I was married then. And so I had a wonderful um, support system to, to get me through. Mm. Um, although I did work, um, I created a, 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 a head trauma study that I was the coordinator for throughout the, um, throughout my time there where we studied um, head injury and the effects of head injury on um, uh, the brain in you know people with uh, you know cu- concussions, post concussion syndrome, those kind of things. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. So and and what was really nice was my ten years of experience working as a nurse um, really did help me when I was in graduate school because. Uh, especially in the field of neuropsychology. Uh, I didn't even know there was a field of neuropsychology um, um, until I went to graduate school. And basically what neuropsychology is, is the study of brain behavior relationships. So it's the study of people who have had um, brain-related problems such as head trauma or stroke or dementia. And we, we would evaluate these people and then see if their performance on memory tests or personality tests, executive tests, if they were significantly lower than I would expect for someone of that age and education. And then if there was a significant drop, was it due to brain back related um, problems or was it maybe emotional uh, related problems? Because sometimes depression can can cloud the mind and you can, um, it looks like it might be a dementia when in fact it's a depression. And if you treat the depression, the, the memory problems will get better. So there's a mm. really high need for neuropsychological assessments and also kids to evaluate them for learning disabilities, autistic spectrum disorders, um, uh, those kind of things. So it was a, it was a nice fit for me because I had this great um, uh, medical knowledge that I could that I already knew that they just had they people in graduate school had to learn themselves. So I felt like I mm. had to step up. And you know, getting after that one statistics class, um, I will tell you, um, I struggled really hard. I ended up you know passing that. But then after that, I, we found out that the instructor that I had, um, her husband was struggling with Alzheimer's d- disease, but they let her go because she was just a bad teacher. 
So oh, wow. all the other statistics classes that I had were a breeze because I, I had decent teachers. So sometimes when you, you're, you're in a class and you're struggling, sometimes it's you, but yeah. sometimes it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, so you, you earn your PhD. That must've been a awesome achievement that moment. Um, I assume you walked across the stage. You got, yes, you got I your, did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And where did you get your PhD from again? Nova University down here in Fort Lauderdale, where I live. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And at that point in time, was it was it pretty clear to you uh, exactly what you were going to do and how you were going to leverage that? Or did it take a little time to figure out? Well, it's. I was pretty sure because I was in... Uh, a pretty nice place um, in contrast to some of my other, uh, the, the other students in my class because my husband uh, already had an established practice. So I just pretty much walked into his practice. Oh, um, perfect. So, so I, I still had to find, you know, my own patients and market my own practice for neuropsychology. But, um, but yeah, the, the fact that I already had a place to go was, um, was really very helpful to me. So, Mm. yeah, but basically what I wanted to do, it was, it was interesting because originally I wanted to become a therapist to help people with depression, but then, um, but then I kind of fell into neuropsychology because of my background as being a nurse. So Mm. there are not very many neuropsychologists who are also therapists. They're, you know, you know, with, with neuropsychology, you're just doing a lot of assessing. You're not really treating people. You're just collecting data. Whereas with therapy, you're actually developing a relationship with this, this individual and getting to know them and to, to help them through their, so they're kind of like apples and oranges. And, and neuropsychology was never what I really you know, was hoping and praying to become. I wanted to be a therapist, but I have to tell you, it's really lucrative to to be a neuropsychologist because there's just mm. a high demand out there for, you know, people who really know what they're doing when, when it comes to the assessment of people with brain-related diseases. So so I did a little bit of, so I did neuropsychology um, to kind of put, put um, you know, bread on the table, but um, my real love was 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 being a therapist. So I did both for for quite some time. Hmm. And so now today, uh, you are uh, the certified MBSR instructor, and you have your own practice. Uh, you, as as we heard in your intro, you are plenty busy. <laughs> um, Tell me, tell me about kind of what your day to day is like now. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that uh, I I still do a combination of things, but I stopped doing the neuropsychological assessment. And you know, I in in the uh, text that you sent me bef- in preparation for this, you you asked me to think of uh, some stories of gumption, like maybe where. I might have made an unpopular decision, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, letting go 
of the lucrative neuropsych practice um, what took a lot of gumption for me so that I could focus mm. um, more on my mindfulness practice. But I think that the, so to go back a little bit, um, how I got into uh, founding and creating the South Florida Center for Mindfulness was actually started on, um, I received something on the neuropsychology uh, listserv that talked about this new evidence-based treatment group therapy for to prevent depression relapse. And uh, it was called hmm. mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. So mm -hmm. I thought, you know, at that time I had done um, a lot of groups. I was the relapse prevention group leader at the Renfrew Center, which is an eating disorder unit here uh, down in, in, in Fort Lauderdale. I really loved doing groups. Um, I feel like a sense of connectedness with a group, um, a sense of empowerment. I, I just love doing groups. So I thought, okay, let me get this book and I'm going to read this book and see if maybe this is something I could do. So I get the book and I, you know, they say, okay, if you want to teach this class, this is what you talk about in week one. These are the handouts. This is week two. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, this is cookbook. I could actually do this. And they said, but then on, I think, page 304 of the book, they said, <laughs> if you want to really teach this, if you want to teach this program, you have to take a class in MBSR yourself. And MBSR is mindfulness-based stress reduction. And I had never heard about MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction. So, but I thought, okay, I'll just sign up for the class. So I just Googled MBSR, you know, there, there must be a class down here in, in Boca. That's where my office was. And mm -hmm. nothing, mm -hmm. nothing popped up in Google. And I'm like back, and this was back in 2011. So for nothing to pop up in Google, it's like, it just wasn't around. And so I go, okay, let me Google MBSR uh, Fort Lauderdale. That's where I live. Nothing popped up. So then I oh, finally boy. go, okay, MBSR, like South Florida. And finally, I found there was a woman that was teaching it in South Miami on a Saturday. Um, it was an eight-week class. And so I thought, okay, well, let me, you know, I just got a new car. And I thought, well, it'd be a nice drive on Saturday to get down there. So I, so I signed up. Um, so, but I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I was a little, um, a little skeptical about taking the class because before you even go for the first class, you have an right. inter you have an interview with the teacher, and the teacher says to you, you know, I just want to let you know that you know you're going to be asked to uh, dedicate about 45 minutes to an hour of daily home practice throughout the eight weeks. And you're going to be doing oh, wow. like meditation practice. And I, and I was like, Oh my God, 45 minutes. I mean, I was lucky enough to be able to do 10 on a guided, you know, meditation. And, and I, and it's so, so funny, Ryan, because yeah. I used to teach, you know, my, uh, not, um, mindfulness-based, but I used to teach relax and biofeedback-assisted relaxation therapy. And uh, so I would guide these people through these things, and I just couldn't do it myself. So hmm. I thought, well, I don't know if I can do that. And then I said, you know, I don't know. I'm. She probably thought I was full of myself. I said, I'm a doctor. I'm really busy. I don't know if I can do this. But she was 
very kind to me. And she said, you know, I have found that when I practice in the morning, it kind of reboots my, my brain so that I end up getting done as much as I would have, or if not more, if I had not meditated. So it ends up being a wash. So I thought, okay, well, I'll take a chance. So I signed up for the class. And in the very first class, and I didn't take this class because I wanted stress reduction, remember? Right. I just wanted to teach this mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. But, oh, my God, in the very first class, and we started to settle in and allow our minds to be still, I never realized how anxious I was. (laughs) until I started to slow down. Yeah. And then when I started to slow down, it felt so good. I was like, okay, I need to learn how to teach this. And so, so I took the class. I ended up taking the class, not for my practice, but for myself. Um, and then um, I and then I opened up the South Florida Center for Mindfulness and I started teaching it to lay people in the community. Um, mm-hmm. But then people um, like would come that were healthcare providers and they would say, you know, can can we get CEs for this class? And then I remembered that my husband had a CE company back in the 90s, International Seminars Group. Um, and I thought, well, maybe we could resurrect that company and be the CE provider for these mindfulness-based interventions. So, so that's how International Seminars Group was born, um, because we we now uh, provide continuing education classes, continuing education for MBSR and also the Mindful Self Compassion class and other workshops to not only our company, the South Florida Center for Mindfulness, but in, in 25 other um, places in the United States. So wow. We're, we're, wow. Nation, we're nationwide now. And I think that last year we, we were able, I think a thousand healthcare providers um, had, have taken our mindfulness-based classes. So it's very mm. exciting, very exciting. That that's what gets me to the the next section here of 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 this conversation and this episode of of stories of gumption. I wanna I wanna dive into your expertise in this in this subject, and I wanna sort of frame it from you know a beginner to an average listener. How can they get started, and how can they better understand what it is we're even talking about here? Mm-hmm. And so I guess I'll I'll start with my first question. Okay. What is what really is mindfulness and and the extension? What is meditation? Okay, well, the definition of mindfulness that I use is the one that was uh, coined by uh, Dr. John Kabat-Zinn back in 1979 when he began. Uh, he created the mindfulness-based stress reduction program, and he says that mindfulness is simply paying attention. But you're paying attention in a very specific way. So firstly, you're paying attention on purpose. So for example, if uh, you say that I just want to spend a couple of minutes focusing in on sounds, um, it's like you're setting the intention to 
to just pay attention to sounds. So you're setting the, so you're paying attention on purpose. You're also paying attention in the present moment. So say you're focusing, you're sitting and you're deciding to focus in on sounds and then all of a sudden your mind wanders off to the future. Like, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? You, you notice, mm -hmm. you're like, oh, I'm off in the future. And then you bring yourself back to the present moment. Conversely, you may be sitting focusing on sounds and you think about maybe the argument that you had with your partner before you, know, you came to work this morning. And you say, oh, I'm off in the past and bring yourself back to the present moment. So you're paying attention on purpose in the present moment. And then thirdly, and this is the most challenging, for me, the most challenging aspect of mindfulness is that you're paying attention in this um, open-hearted, curious, non-judgmental way. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, this mind that I have uh, does an awful lot of judging. Um, all, you know, it's like I, I use, I say, you know, uh, my brain sometimes is like a lean, mean judging machine. And it's like, and <laughs> I, I don't even, I don't even, I thought I was the least, one of the least judgmental people on the planet until I, until I started practicing meditation. And then I realized all these judgmental thoughts that would just come in and go out just when I'm focusing in on my breath. Um, so, um, so yeah. So when you notice that you're uh, judging and you're, you're sitting there, you're focusing in on sounds and you notice the mind has wandered um, and you, you say, oh, I'm off in the future, bring it back. Well, if sometimes people will judge themselves harshly for no reason because they're just in the habit of judging themselves harshly. So they'll say, oh, that's you idiot. Why did you get distracted? Get back to that breath. You're not doing <laughs> this right. You're not meditating right. Well, just so what you do is you notice the judging and then you don't judge the judging. And then you come right back to focusing on, in on sounds. So I know there's lots of layers here. So, but basically yeah. so mindfulness is, is being, you know, paying attention on purpose in the present moment and without judgment. So if that's what mindfulness is, well, what is mindful meditation? Well, mindful meditation is a formal practice where we devote however many minutes that you can whether it be mm -hmm. five to 10 minutes, you know, I practice 40 minutes a day, um, uh, where you, you just focus, you allow the focus of your attention to be on something, like whether it be breathing, your body sensations, sounds, maybe your thoughts, um, and even your emotions, just tracking and monitoring your emotions. And then when your mind wanders back to the past or off to the future, you bring it back. So in this daily formal meditation practice that you do, it actually helps you to be more mindful throughout the rest of your day. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You, mm. you really, um, it's that formal, a lot of people, you know, can say, oh yeah, I just need to be present, but it's like a skill. Um, if you want to be a good tennis player, you've got to practice your swing, right? 
So exactly. it's the same thing with, uh, with mindfulness. If you want to be more fully present throughout the day, less reactive, more responsive to whatever happens, then you really got to put your time in on, on, on the cushion or, you know, like, <laughs> or in the yeah. chair. So, uh, yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about that. So, I mean, um, I, I, I've tried, uh, meditation, but, it, it, uh, I don't know. It's interesting as you like a total beginner. Um, and this was a few years ago. Uh, I haven't done it. I haven't tried recently, but, uh, it's hard to know if you're doing it right. You're like, and maybe that's part of the lack of mindfulness I had because I'm worrying about, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? And it's mm. like, no, no, I should have brought myself back to just what the focus was. But um, in our example, sounds or, yeah. you know, but how does someone like me, or I would assume maybe many listeners start and, and how do they um, attribute it to something where they might feel feel like, oh, I am doing this right because I'm seeing the benefit. Mm. You know what I'm trying to say? Yes. Yes. Well, so like, let's just use your example that you just, that you just said about you've practiced it and you realize you in the practice, you said, oh, I'm not doing it right. Well, if you, you being aware of that, you had this thought and I'm going to put your thought in quotes, I'm not mm -hmm. doing this right. You're, you are aware that that thought just entered into your head and you just mm -hmm. allow that thought to come in and go out. But most thoughts are not facts. <laughs> mm. And you can like, I can have the craziest thoughts. And what really was liberating for me when I started um, practicing mindfulness is that you are not your thoughts, number one. And thoughts are not always facts. So you can have the thought, quote, I'm not doing this right. And then just notice that you're having that thought, but without judging it and saying, and, and as you notice you having these thoughts, you may notice that, you know, you're judging yourself harshly for something that is totally normal for the brain to do. If our brains mm -hmm. didn't wander off, to the future or to the past, we'd all be dead by now. <laughs> Seriously, we, we need to learn how to multitask. You know, like think about just the act of breathing. You know, if we had to think about breathing, you know, it, you know we, we would all be dead. So we have this wonderful, the body, the human body is just this magnificent, miraculous organism that does so many different things for us. So when we notice that our mind has wandered, it's just looking out for us. It's, it's trying to take care of us. But in that particular moment, we can tell our mind, well, okay, we don't need to be focused on that right now. Let's come right back. It's sort of like, um, I like to say, like, it, you're trying to train a puppy to stay on its pad, you know, mm -hmm. and the puppy, you know, is going to wander off when he, you know, and if, and if the puppy wanders off, do you beat up the puppy for wandering off its pad? No, no. You just gently escort him back and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. in a non-judgmental way. So that is the practice noticing, you know, and, and that was so liberating for me. And I think as a, 
as someone who struggled with depression uh, throughout her my life is that I, you know, I judged myself harshly for many, many things. Um, some things, you know, I deserved a judgment call on, you know, I shouldn't have done that, you know, but there were other things like judging myself harshly for, you know, the way I'm built, you know, judge, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't have any control over that. I have some control, you know, but, um, judging, you know, myself for, um, for like the mind wanders off and, you know, for being distracted, you know, that's just what the mind does. So, mm -hmm. and, and that was my first, um, my first practice in working on being less self-critical of myself. And, mm -hmm. and I'll tell you, I was in therapy for three years to help me with depression and my eating symptoms. Um, and I felt like after those three years, I was no longer depressed, which was wonderful. I was really happy about that. But I'm telling you, with the mindfulness practices, I went from being non-depressed to actually being happy. Wow. And, uh, and, and it, it, it's not just me that has experienced this. Like Dan Harris, he's the anchor for ABC News Nightline. He wrote, yeah. he wrote the book 10% um, uh, Happier, and he's got the 10% Happier podcast. And he, you know, he believes that as a result of his mindful meditation practice, he's 10% happier. And uh, I would say I'm probably 24% happier. Um, so be, <laughs> That's but, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, yes, when you have the thought, so just being mindful that you have that thought, um, and put your thought in quotes like, oh, I'm not doing this right. Okay, that thought is here. Now let's go back to practicing focusing on sounds and and just just let it go. And you're what you're doing is you're cultivating this ability for focused attention. And yeah. that really does help in in everyday life, in your conversations with other people, um, uh, when you're when you are working and all of a sudden you get like a, a, a chime from like you get a text from someone, yep. um, you, you know, you can choose you, when you're mindful of that, you can choose and you can say, do I really want to take that now? Or do I want to finish instead of just reacting, you know, uh, you know, to it without even thinking about it. I imagine it could, it could also be applied to, um, you know, like maybe fitness goals or, or dieting goals or something like that too. Mm. Like if, if you're trying to just be more the cl classic thing, right? Everybody says, Oh, I don't have the willpower for that. Yes. But is it, is it the willpower or is it the mindfulness of, of recognizing what you really want and the reasons why you want it? Yes. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because I also teach an eight-week mindful eating program called Eat for Life, and and mm. there's an app out there called Eat Right Now uh, that I um, that I also am a uh, Eat Right Now facilitator for, and it really uh, when it comes down to food cravings, it's not about willpower. It's it's about being present, and I will tell you that. There's so much neuroscience that is out there right now that um, shows that when we 
that we are vulnerable to habitual ways of responding, such as giving into food cravings or smoking or going for a drink or going for you know uh, some weed or whatever. Um, we're more vulnerable to soothing ourselves on, on, on when we are on automatic pilot. And mm. the more mindful we can become throughout the day, uh, and the, the more aware we can be of what our triggers are, and maybe learn how to, once we know that we are triggered, instead of you know, taking a step back and being able to say, okay, what just happened? And why am I walking towards the refrigerator right now? Um, and do I need soothing? And maybe, maybe is there another way that I can soothe myself besides using food that might actually work? Like maybe I need to mm. have a phone call with somebody, you know, who I'm upset about, or maybe, you know, maybe there's, there's something that I need to address in an email or, you know, you can see what's triggering you and then create mm. a more wholesome response. But that's the whole wonderful thing about mindfulness is that it gives you a space between the stimulus, something that triggers you, and a response. So it, it, when you have just a couple of seconds to really drop into the body, the moment that something has happened when, you know, your your sympathetic nervous system has been activated and you go into mm -hmm. fight or mm -hmm. flight mode, if you can actually take a breath, stop and observe your surroundings, drop into the body, what are the body sensations here? What are my thoughts? What are my feelings? What you're doing is you're collecting data so that, so that you might be able to respond instead of that typical knee-jerk reaction. And I will tell mm. you one thing, if one thing mindfulness has done for, for me, um, has really helped me in my relationship with my husband because, you know, you know, I don't know, in every relationship, there's always, you know, um, one, uh, one person who probably is the more reactive one. Um, mm -hmm. and for me in our relationship, it was always me for the longest time. And so, for example, we would, you know, in the morning, we could be just having a cup of coffee. We're sitting across the bar from each other. And then all of a sudden he will say something that will make me feel, you know, usually when he puts something on my to-do list for the day, that's usually something that kind of gets me, yep. you know, it, it sparks, you know, I get triggered. And, <laughs> and so if I notice, but now I notice when I get triggered, what happens to me in my body is my, my cheeks get really hot. And, and now if I, 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 when I notice that in my body, I, I'm more aware of when I've been activated, I can say, oh, I'm activated. Let me just take a breath, just pause and see what's really going on. And that, those two seconds has really been, you know, life-saving for me. It keeps me from saying things like that I'm going to have to apologize for later. And I hate to apologize. Right. Right. So, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been very, very helpful for me on so many levels. And that's why I was so motivated to create the South Florida Center for Mindfulness and then also to help, you know, these healthcare providers with burn, you know, to prevent burnout. Research has shown that not only will it help prevent burnout, but it will also improve patient satisfaction scores. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy, right? Yeah. 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 The patience of, of 
mindful, uh, mindful minded people um, are more likely to get higher patient satisfaction scores than people who are not high, highly mindful. That's yeah. awesome. That's yeah. crazy. And and that's why that's why they're bringing it into the workplace. Like Makes total with, sense, though. Yeah, like with Google and and Aetna, all these companies are bringing these mindfulness based programs into them because they know it also affects their bottom line. Yeah, it helps their employees, but it also helps their bottom line too. So mm. so yeah yeah I've been I was uh, teaching mindfulness based stress reduction to nurses at the Memorial Healthcare System down here, which was five hospitals down here in South Broward, and and it was just such a thrill for me, uh, because I, I wish that I would have had a stress reduction program back when I was a nurse. So I'm, I'm happy to be able to, to be able to do that now for this generation of nurses. Yeah, that's awesome. It back to the, to the self, uh, practice. I mean, um, if I were to try or a listener were to try, uh, giving this a shot and trying to make it a pattern of behavior, uh, is there a recommended amount of time that you should try and meditate each mm. day to, to get and and like also I guess my extension to that too is how do you know when you when when you're done mm. you know what I'm saying like if you're trying it out and you and you you're totally brand new to it and you don't the whole thing is a new exploration for you how do you know when you've done the appropriate amount yeah good question. Well, for me, what works for me is structure. And I think that um, what I did when I was first learning how to practice, like I wanted to practice before even taking the eight-week class. Um, so what I did was I listened to some, um, some guided uh, meditation practices. And I, I listened to John Kabat-Zinn's uh, awareness, mm -hmm. awareness of Breathing meditation, which I'm sure that you could get anywhere, but you can also go to uh, my website at mindfulsouthflorida.com. I have some 10 minute like freebie meditations that you can download and that you can listen to. Um, awareness of the breathing. I also have a 10 minute body scan, but I would, oh, I nice. would, I would invite people to try 10, try 10 minutes. And if they can't do 10 minutes, then maybe five minutes. But try the 10 minutes and you will, I, I know what happened to me is if you are, say you're in the middle of, you're five minutes into a 10 minute meditation, you're going to get thoughts like, oh my God, I got to, I got to answer this email before I forget, you know, mm -hmm, you're going to mm -hmm. get those things. So those thoughts. So just notice, okay, I have that thought. Um, What's going on? What's the feeling associated with that thought? Oh, impatience. Oh, yes. Impatience is here. I want to get up right now, <laughs> you know, and sometimes yep. I will have to actually sit on my hands to keep me, you know, you know, there until the meditation practice is over. But it's a it's a discipline. And yeah, so I, I would really invite you to try 10 minutes and do do 10 minutes for like a week. And if that if you can do that, then maybe coming going a little farther, maybe fifteen minutes, and then twenty minutes, um, and then and then see how you feel as as a result of of doing these practices. But there are other uh, little ways that you can bring mindfulness to everyday life um, without okay. you having to sit on the cushion. Um, yeah, 
And the, I think that the easiest way to be mindful, what, what really helps for me is if you could pick an activity that you do every day, like for me, it's brushing my teeth. So yep. when I'm, when I'm, when I get up in the morning and I, I go into the bathroom, I, right now it, it, tr I, I know now to really brush your teeth when you're brushing your teeth, notice the sensation of the bristles against your gums, against your teeth and on your tongue. Notice the, the temperature. I want you to like really drop into the, the, all the senses, the, the taste, mm. the taste of the toothpaste, yeah. um, the sound of, of the brushing, the, the touch of the bristles, and to really drop into the full, using as many senses as you can to, to bathe yourself in the experience of brushing your teeth. And same thing like with taking a shower. Um, when you're taking a shower, really kind of close your eyes and see how the temperature of the water feels against your skin. You know, is it cool? Is it warm? Is it soothing? Mm, um, yeah. And, you know, notice the pressure of, of the water. And, you know, is it something that you enjoy? And, and mindfulness does not have to be something that you enjoy. Um, you can be mindfully present when you're having an argument with someone as long as you're breathing through it or when you're in traffic. And that's another place to be really mindfully present is yeah. like when you're, yeah. you're in a, a traffic jam and, and just to be able to notice, okay, let me practice mindfulness here. Let me, how is my breathing? Is my breathing fast? You know, how, how, how are my tension levels? Are my, are my hands glued to the steering wheel? Do I have a lot of tension there? Do, is there tension in my neck? And maybe if I take a deep breath in, can I release some of that tension as I'm, as I'm sitting here waiting in this traffic jam? Just take a breath. But mm. that's, that's really what mindfulness is. It's, 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 yeah. it's simply being fully present with all of your senses. Because a lot of times we stay in our heads and we don't, we really neglect sensations that are coming at us from our bodies. And our bodies can give us a lot of clues to whether or not we're stressed. And if we can pay attention to those clues, then it's, you know, we can respond to our bodies and take care of our bodies much sooner than had we just, do we just keep ignoring those signals? Yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's amazing to put it into real life examples like that. Um, you know, out of my own curiosity, uh, before this podcast, I did, I did some brief Google searching just to kind of get some background on the impact of, of mindfulness and meditation. And, uh, I actually found a couple interesting things I'm curious, uh, your thoughts on, but, uh, two things that really, really grabbed my attention were one article that said, uh, meditation, uh, as a treatment for pain. Yes. And the other one was, uh, it actually showed some data on, uh, mindfulness and in particular meditation, the practice of meditation, uh, protecting the aging brain from decline. Yes. Yep. I know so both of those. On both, on both of those things, that would be really interesting to me. Okay. Well, John Kabat-Zinn, back in 1979, he created the stress reduction program specifically for people with chronic pain. And uh, what he used this in this eight-week program, we teach um, mindful meditation, 
we teach gentle stretching yoga, and we also work on the cultivation of mindful communication skills. And one of the meditation practices that we do is the body scan meditation, where you focus on different parts of the body, you know, sequentially. You start from the toes of the left foot and you go all the way up uh, down one side of the body and down the other. And you're really mm -hmm. paying mm -hmm. kind attention to all the different sensations of the body. And there will be people like I'm, I just started an eight week class now we're in week two and, and people have had a week of practicing the body scan and they will tell you, you know, I struggle with chronic pain. And I noticed when I was paying attention to certain body parts by paying attention to it, it actually enhanced the pain. You know, I could feel it more because <laughs> That's crazy. because I was paying attention to it. And it makes sense because with mindfulness, the the experience is gonna be of the, the experience of whatever you put your attention to is going to be enhanced. So if it's a pleasurable experience, it'll make it more pleasurable. If it's painful, it could make it more painful. But by allowing what the trick is with the body scan is just allowing the sensation to be there and practice this beginner's mind as if you had never experienced this particular sensation at all. And you say, oh, okay, so there's something going on in my right shoulder. Well, okay, is it, is it, uh, is it more towards the, the, my spine or is it over, you know, more towards the side of my body? Is it, you know, where is it exactly? What are the boundaries? And is it, what kind of a sensation is it? Is it a burning or is it a sharp pain or is it a dull ache? It's like we're being scientists and we're exploring the sensation. What, what's, mm -hmm. and, and by applying what we call this beginner's mind to the sensation of pain and not feeding the thoughts that are associated with it. See, that's, the, that's where we run into trouble with chronic pain is that when we get a pain, um, we can't help that we have the pain. It, it's just there. But say, you know, you get pain in your right knee. You know, you may now yeah. get, you can go down a, 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 a bad road of thinking, oh my God, my knee's hurting me now. That's where I had, you know, my surgery before. Am I going to need surgery? You know, maybe I'm going to need a knee replacement. And oh my God, I have to, I have to go on this run, yep. you know, in a couple of days, what am I going to do? Am I going to be able to run? And your mind just goes off to the races. And you, what you're doing is when, with those thoughts, it's actually activating sympathetic nervous system, um, activating the sympathetic nervous system, which isn't going to increase your pain. So wow. if, if you can remove, you, you notice the thoughts when you're practicing the body scan and you're focusing on that knee, you, you just play with the sensations. You just, you know, explore like what kind, what are its boundaries on a scale of one to 10? What is it right now? And, you know, you're just analyzing it, but not feeding the thoughts or the emotions. Yeah. You, you may notice the thoughts that are there. Oh, I'm worried about that race on, on Saturday. Okay. Noticing worry, letting worry go out and go right back onto focusing in on the pure sensation. And what many people mm. find is when you just focus, focus on the pure sensation, it goes away. Not all the time, but it tends to loosen because you're not That's wild. It is because you're not adding this catastrophic thinking um, to it. You know, you're not adding in, insult to injury with your catastrophic thoughts 
or your worries about the sensation. So it's just allowing the sensation to be there, letting it, you know, you know, not letting it do what it does. And, mm -hmm. and hands down in the 30 years that the mindfulness-based stress reduction program has been out, the research, many, there are, have been several meta-analyses, like these are studies where, that look at like hundreds of studies. Each study looks at hundreds of studies. And they, they have shown that unequivocally, mindfulness-based stress reduction helps people with chronic pain, depression, and anxiety. It also helps a lot of other, you know, uh, like, um, like ADHD and, you know, uh, Crohn's disease, but the, the wow. but the over, the overarching evidence over and over again says it's very effective for chronic pain, depression, and anxiety. And you're focusing right in on, you know, you're doing a body scan meditation. We focus and pay attention to the sensations, but we just focus on the sensations themselves. And if thoughts yeah. or emotions come in, we notice the thoughts or the emotions, but we don't get stuck in them. We go, we go back to exploring the, the sensations. Wow. Yeah. And so, and, and so tell me more, that's, that's amazing. That's it crazy is. to me. Uh, um, I can think of so many people that I know just within my my sphere and, and at times, including myself, where, you know, you have some pain and you talk about it with your friends and family or whoever, uh, but to leverage, uh, the, the benefits of, of meditation, um, and mindfulness around that pain, it's something... not to ignore it when it's serious and you need additional help, but to recognize when, maybe it's not as bad as your mind is letting it become. Right. And maybe there is something you can do to help. Mm. What about that piece about uh, uh, it protecting, you know, an aging brain yeah. from decline? Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. And as a, as a neuropsychologist, I was, I was really excited to read that, that article. And basically if I can, if I remember it correctly, um, well, we all know that, you know, after um, a certain age, uh, our brains start to decline and everybody's, you know, brain de de declines with age. You know, that's why we notice that we have Certainly. more memory problems as we age. So what they, they did some studies with people who um, were just, you know, normal, normal individuals. They didn't have a dementia. Um, but they were just healthy, you know, people in their 60s and their 70s. And they gave them these neuropsychological tests um, before, uh, uh, before uh, they had two groups. One group, I believe, did an eight-week uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction class. And the other group was like a weightless control. Um, and they looked at their brains and they also... Uh, gave them some memory tests before and then after the eight weeks. And I also believe they did like a six month or a one year follow up. And they found that the people who had taken the stress reduction program, um, there, there, was, there was the absence of age related cognitive decline. It's not like their memories improved. It didn't, sure. it didn't decay the way the way their uh the control group had and that is just i'm, I'm i mean that is just 
phenomenal. And I, I really, yeah, that's amazing. As, as a neuropsychologist, you know, I, I know, I think I know how that happens. And there, there's a lot of research that shows that with a meditation practice, a lot of, um, research in the field of contemplative neuroscience. So they look at the brains of people who meditate regularly and they found that those people who can, who meditate regularly, even people who have graduated from an eight week course in MBSR, you can actually see brain changes. You see increased gray matter. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, wow. Yeah, Britta Hosell and, and Associates, they uh, um, uh, out of Harvard, they found that um, you get increased gray matter density in those regions of the brain that are responsible for attention, concentration, and emotional regulation. And wow. it's it, it's it's the hippocampus, it's the insular cortex, and it's the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And as a neuropsychologist, and this is what geeks me out because I, I'm just so ex ex <laughs> excited because I know what part of the brain that is. It's the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. It's right, you know, on the sides of our brain, right by our, by our temples. Um, mm -hmm. That part of the brain is, is responsible for um, impulse control, planning, problem solving, um, that what we call executive abilities. So it makes sense that if you can increase the gray matter density through the practice of, of, of mindful meditation, your executive abilities are, are going to improve and you're going to be less vulnerable to the cognitive decline that you see in people who don't practice meditation. So I foresee that in the next, I would say, maybe 25 years, Meditation will be just as popular as um, running, you know, or going to the gym. Um, yeah. And my hope is that yeah. they will be places in the gym for people to go exercise and then they can go meditate afterwards. Um, but, you know, because it'll just be, you know, it's just normal hygiene to be able to meditate. Yeah. But we'll That's see. That's awesome. <laughs> Oh man, this has been such a good conversation and I got out of it what I was hoping to get. So I'm certainly going to, uh, start practicing oh. and I'll, re I'll report back. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah. Listen and, to my uh, meditations. It, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll put that link, uh, in the podcast too, if, if you're okay with that. And so people can check it out and all that, but I, I'd like to pivot to the stories of gumption rapid fire Ooh, section. Okay. Are you, are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> this part's fun. Okay. So a uh, couple handful of, of very quick questions here. Uh, I ask pretty much, uh, I have a, a list of probably 10 questions that I, I pick from and I uh, rifle them off at the end to sort of close out each episode. And uh, the first one, are you ready? I'm ready. What's a book that you would gift to a friend and why? Okay. Um, well, I have gifted this book to many people. Um, it's the, it's written by John Kabat-Zinn and it's called wherever you go, there you are. And, <laughs> and I recommend it because nice. each, each, um, there's a little page or two that he talks about different things, you know, like, like non-judging or letting go or beginner's mind. 
And it's just like a page or two that kind of lets you drop into and learn a little bit more about mindfulness. So um, you can take bite-sized uh, uh, morsels of mindfulness in that way. Yeah. Wherever you go, there you are. Yes. Or Okay. Wherever you go, there you are. I like it. Yeah. Here's a fun one. Question number two. If you could have a billboard anywhere in the world, what would you put on that billboard and why? <laughs> oh, I love this one. Um, and this, this, came, <laughs> this came to me really quickly um, because I give, this, I give this out to, um, I put this on bracelets and I send it to my friends. Um, oh, perfect. Yeah, it's, um, and this is a, a saying, I think it was created by Thich Nhat Hanh. He's a Buddhist monk. And, uh -huh. and the saying is, no mud, no lotus. Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> I have heard that, but admittedly, my my naivety, I, I I feel like I need you to explain it for me. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I I didn't know I didn't know about this until just a few years ago. But uh, according, I feel like I have heard that before. But yeah, yeah. Please, please so, explain. So according to um, according to folklore, I guess, or I don't know if it's the truth or not, but um, but I just love the saying anyway. The lotus flower can only bloom when it's growing in the mud. Interesting. So to me, um, and this has pretty much been, you know, the mantra of my life is that, you know, I, I grow from adversity. You know, I, I need to, you know, if, we, if I didn't have the mud in my life, I would not have grown into the, the person that I am now. And in, yeah. the, in the future, when I, I come across the mud, you know, I, I, will, I, I will hopefully remind myself, no mud, no lotus. And it might help me stay in the mud as long as I need to be until, you know, I learn, I learn something and can move on. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Can I put an order for for a couple of those bracelets? Uh, yeah, <laughs> those that's awesome. All right. No, I I, I like that a lot. Uh, yeah. Question number three: What's a piece of advice if you could go back in time that you would give to your eighteen year old self? Mm. That was a really good one, and you know, it's so funny what the what I ended up with was actually posted on my on my wall when I was 18 years old, but I just, I knew in my head, you know, this advice, but I didn't feel it in my bones. And, mm. and, uh, and it's the, you know, it's a piece from the Desiderata. Are you familiar with that? Mm -mm. Okay. It's, it's a, it's a poem that was, or a writing that was written um, in 1927 by Max Ehrman. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful poem. Um, but in the, um, one of the one saying, one piece of the poem is, says, you are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt, the universe is unfolding as it should. So, wow. So, yeah. So to me, that helps me feel like I'm, I'm, I'm no less than the trees and the stars. I'm no less than any other person on this planet. 
I have a right to be here. And whatever is happening in this life right now, it's things are unfolding as it should, you know, uh, and, and to just try to be the best person that I can be and just hang on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and who knows where we'd be and what we'd be talking about on the podcast today if uh, you hadn't taken that biology class yes. and then applied for the nursing program at Clinton Community. Absolutely. That's so cool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, question number four. This is my favorite, 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 favorite question. If we could assemble a three-person board of directors to guide and mentor you through the rest of your life, who would those three people be that you would select? They can be alive, deceased, famous, or not, but who would your three people be on your personal board of directors and why? Okay. Um, well, I think first uh, I would definitely have Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, the, the Vietnamese Buddhist monk who was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize um, by um, Martin Luther King Jr., actually. Um, he's just such a wonderful role model for compassion. Um, so he would be on there. Um, and, like then, and then the second one would be Cat Stevens. <laughs> or, I'm sorry, uh, what's his name now? Yusef. Um, oh, God, I can't remember. What his what his Muslim name is now? It's uh, yeah um, something Yusef. Um, but anyway, Cat Stevens. Yeah, because Cat Stevens. Because throughout my life, you know, and even today, you know, his songs have really helped soothe me and guide me and direct me. So he would be a good one on my board of directors, I would think. Um, nice. And then third, third on my board of directors, and I can have anyone who I want, right? Anyone. Okay. Um, Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> and I would want her to be on my board of directors uh, because she is, she is hugely successful in my mind because, you know, because she's just herself and she allows herself to be vulnerable and seeing her vulnerability has, you know, really, and I see that as a strength when we can really talk about our vulnerabilities and, and to be able to do that, I, I really admire her for that. So she would be my third member. <laughs> mm, I like it. Mm. I like it. Mm. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, Sharon, thank you so much for giving, giving me and the listeners some of your valuable time. Mm, you're welcome. Um, I'd like to give you uh, an opportunity to give a, a sending message, whatever you like. It can be um, about your business, how they can get in touch with you, uh, a sending message on mindfulness, maybe both, but uh, I'd love to give you an opportunity to share that. Great. Thank you. Okay. So if you are interested in practicing some mindful meditation practices, you can always go to my website, which is www.mindfulsouthflorida, all spelled out, .com. And you go to the resources section and then pick uh, meditations. And I think you'll see about four different meditations there. Um, I also do some online mindful coaching. And you can send me an email at... Uh, 
drtherou, T-H-E-R-O-U-X at comcast.net. Or you can call our office at 561-395-0243. I use the Zoom platform for mindful coaching, and we also do corporate workshops. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm now doing national workshops, all-day workshops in mindful eating. Um, I have a workshop, Your Brain on Mindfulness, that explains in much more detail what goes on with the brain uh, when you're practicing mindfulness. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's, that's how you can reach us. And hopefully, we'll be doing um, eight-week courses in mindfulness-based stress reduction up in the North Country sometime real soon. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. And uh, I'm sure I'll be seeing you around. Uh, <laughs> but uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I've gained a lot from this conversation. I'm sure the listeners have gained a lot from this conversation. And it's greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Ryan. Take care. Well, everybody, until next time, this is uh, Stories of Gumption podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sticking around. And enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Mm.